Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Okay, before we hear from our speaker, let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. Um, okay, my name is Roy. Doug Paul. Kurt. I'm Len. My name is Freddie. My name is Tony. Henry. <coughs> Roger. I'm Mark. I'm Bruce. My name is Eric. Chris. Ed. My name is Ari. I'm Jack. My name is Cass. Michael. My name is David. Paul. My name is Jerry. My name is Ray Dyer. My name is Michael. Peter. Our speaker today is David Lewis, a member of our Sangha. David has been following the Dharma path for 40 years and has a degree in comparative religious studies. <clears throat> he attempted his first retreat in the Tibetan Shambhala tradition at the age of 17 and has been practicing Vipassana meditation since moving to San Francisco over 20 years ago. For the past five years, he's been practicing intensively, spending about six weeks a year in silent retreat. He's a graduate of Spirit Rock Meditation Center's Dedicated Practitioners Program. Welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> I'm happy you're here this morning. Um, it really does make me happy every Sunday when I come to when I'm able to come to GBF. Um, I usually sit out there with you. And I always appreciate the fact that in San Francisco, on a day like this, when we could all be sleeping in on a Sunday morning, or dressing up, or dressing down for the Folsom Street Fair, <laughs> we all show up here instead. And um, at the very least, we're willing to sit in silence together for 30 minutes. I just think that's a remarkable thing. And that you, we, are a really remarkable group of men. It's such a unique thing in our culture. So, um, give yourself some credit. It's good merit for, for all of us and for all beings. So, um, I don't exactly know why I get asked to speak here every once in a while. Um, I don't think it's because I'm a particularly uh, deep or wise teacher. 
I suspect it's because I have a lot of enthusiasm for the Dharma, or the Dhamma, as it's called in Pali. Dhamma being both the teachings of the Buddha and it also means just the nature of things, the way things are, that is revealed when we meditate, when we're silent, when we go inward rather than outward. I have a lot of enthusiasm for that, and it supports my life. My practice supports my life in ways that um, I wish I was better at expressing. But I think some of you that have um, that, that, that try to practice the Dhamma in your daily life know what I'm talking about. The practice of Dhamma brings a lot of happiness to my life, even when things aren't all um, hunky-dory. The Buddha um, has been described as the first great scientist of happiness. And um, as you all may know, the Dalai Lama has said, my religion is, is, is happiness. I would certainly agree with that and say that the Buddha is, um, in my estimation, the greatest psychologist that's ever lived. He understood the human mind and parsed it in in ways that are only just beginning to be understood by the, the scientific community today. One of the ways that the Buddhist psychology was different than um, Western psychology, somewhat, is that the Buddha saw that there was dukkha in the world, in our lives, dukkha being dissatisfaction, so it's often translated as suffering, which I don't think is a very good translation, but dissatisfaction or wanting things to be other than they are. But the Buddha also taught that there's sukha. The opposite of dukkha is sukha. Sukha is happiness. So our lives are this balance of dukkha and sukha. Every, everything we do in every moment of our day is some balance of dukkha and sukha. And it's not like we can get rid of all the dukkha in our lives and only have sukha which is a lovely thought. Nor can we um, only live in dukkha. Sometimes when, when things aren't going well, we can be okay with that. So for the Buddha and the Buddha's teaching, the happiness is a fundamental condition. It's something that is part of our Buddha nature, if you are from the Mahayana tradition. It's something that you all have right now. It already exists. It's just covered up. So getting at tranquility and sukha, happiness in your life is a matter of uncovering. Happiness comes from, sukha comes from um, acceptance of the moment as it is and gratitude for the moment as it is, even if the moment's not perfect. In the West, we tend to think of happiness as something that needs to be pursued or gotten. In the West, we tend to view our, our dukkha, our dissatisfaction, as um, something's missing. There's a sense of lack. Um, and in order to transform that dukkha, that dissatisfaction, into sukha, happiness, we need to go get something. We need to get possessions. We need to find the right relationship. We need to find the right job. We need to change apartments. 
whatever we need to change to make things better. And the Buddha really tried to steer us away from that idea that, that happiness is someplace other than where we are. The relentless pursuit of happiness that we all do in our everyday lives um, kind of takes two different forms in terms of our activity. One is looking for pleasure, looking for you know the thing, the person, the job, the activity that's going to make us feel better. And the other is turning away from our dukkha, turning away from whatever's making us uncomfortable. That can be really big issues like relationships and jobs that you know are just driving us crazy and we turn away from or it can be really small things. I was on a, uh, uh, I, I did a, a retreat with a group of Theravada monks earlier on this spring and one of the monks just delighted me by, by providing a, an example and a definition of dukkha that uh, just resonated for me. This monk said, Dukkha, he said, Dukkha is dirty glasses. <laughs> For those of you that wear glasses, you know, you, you all of a sudden you notice there's a smudge on your glasses and, you know, you might not have a handkerchief or something to wipe it off with, and, but as soon as you notice it, it just drives you nuts until you fix it. But, you know, chances are you've been sitting around for half a day with that smudge on your glasses and it's, it's been okay until you notice it. That's dukkha. Our lives are full of dukkha. So when the Buddha taught that dukkha is a condition of life, you know, he's not saying we're all miserable all the time, or we're all suffering, that terrible word suffering all the time. It's just that it's one thing after another that needs to be fixed or changed or, or altered. And our efforts at fixing, changing, or altering dukkha so that we get some sukha or at least some relief um, take the form of what the Buddha called craving. Meaning, I want things to be different. I want more of this, I want less of that. So this constant cycle of noticing things are, are a little bit wrong, dirty glasses, bad job, unsatisfactory relationship, and trying to either turn away from it or grab something that's better is what's called samsara. It's, it's the wheel of suffering that we're all on, we're running on like hamsters through our entire lives. And the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's path, was how to get off that wheel of samsara. How to step off a wheel. Which is easier said than done for those of you that have have, um, have a practice and or have even thought about it um, and tried to do it. Because a lot of those activities that we've come up with over the course of our lives to turn away from our dukkha or to find sukkha don't really serve us well. Sometimes they just add to our add to our dukkha, add to our dissatisfaction. And the fact that we're always looking, that this craving is always craving for something different, craving for change, is, is always present, 
um, leads to a whole set of behaviors that can become addictive, sometimes are addictive. And actually I think we all have addictions of, of some sort, and it's the, our addictions are our ways of turning away from the present moment in order to feel better or, or have something more. So the Buddha's path invites us to look at our own experience and see what's going on. And if we can do that in a non-judgmental way, um, we have some opportunity to change our patterns. The, the things that we do to turn away from our experience um, in Pali are called sankharas. And sankharas are, to a certain extent, they're kind of like our ordinary neuroses in, in Western psychology, but sankharas are just our habits and our patterns and the ways that we deal with sadness in our lives and the ways that we deal with our happiness in our lives. Um, it's it's the, our ways of dealing with the world that each, are unique to each and every one of us. They're called sankharas. So when we meditate, and especially if we have the opportunity to meditate for um, a couple of hours a day or if we have the opportunity to do a retreat, like many of you did last weekend, we have time to just sit in silence and see what arises without turning away. It takes a lot of courage to see what arises without turning away. We can see our sankharas. We can see our patterns. So it takes a lot of courage to be a practitioner. It means um, being open to whatever comes up without turning away from it. And that's not so easy. Uh, one of my um, favorite teachers, monastic teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, talks about it as um, standing under whatever experience you're having. It might be a negative experience. You might have lost somebody um, close to you and you might be experiencing grief. Or you might have lost a job, or you might have lost your stock portfolio. And Ajahn Sumedho uh, talks about relating to that experience by standing under it. It's like standing underneath a waterfall. Like if you're feeling grief, instead of turning away from it, try to just stand there and feel the grief and watch what happens to it. And the wonderful thing, usually, that we end up seeing is that it's impermanent. If we stand under any experience, happy or unhappy, for long enough, it changes. So one of the things our sankharas do, our habits of life, is we tend to automatically, I'm mean, an automatic pilot, we turn away from experiences that are unpleasant, just Automatically, as soon as something unpleasant comes up, we turn the other way. Or we read a book, or we have a drink, or we get something to eat, or we turn on the TV, or we, you know, whatever we do. 
and pleasant experiences, we latch onto, we grasp. Both are aspects of what the Buddha calls craving. So what the Buddha recommends is just be with what's with happening and appreciate it for its, its own nature and realize that it's going to be temporary. For the longest time, that practice was a real challenge for me because my I, I have kind of a sankara of my own of being fairly judgmental, especially about myself. So for the longest time, when I started sitting long retreats and sitting regularly at home, um, and I would see stuff come up, I'd think, ooh, that's not very nice. Need to change that. Which, of course, just caused me to shut the door on it again and bury it, and then it became stronger. So being able to see your own stuff as it comes up and not be judgmental about it and know that this is the result of causes and conditions and that you probably had very good reason for coming up with this defense or that habit at some time in your life that served you well. And just be able to recognize that right now it's like, oh, not serving me quite as well. Maybe that's something I can let go of. And if we see it enough times, we can do it. So the challenge is, is to remain open to whatever happens without seeking solid forms, without trying to make it solid. Usually it's what we do when something's good in our lives. Or on the other hand, without seeking quick solutions to feel safe. Which is of course what we do. When something scary happens, we, we do whatever we need to do to feel safe. Kind of reactively. So I have this poem by Hafiz that speaks to this somewhat. I really love it. It's a little bit long, but it's worth it. It's called Cast All Your Bullets for Dancing. I know the voice of depression still calls to you. I know these habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. Those are Sankaras. But you are with the friend now and look so much stronger and can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and the glance of your beloved and, my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may be, that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> you are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours delight him, what actions of yours bring freedom and love. Whenever you say God's name, dear, dear pilgrim, my ears wish my head was missing so that they would finally kiss each other and apply it all, applaud all your nourishing wisdom. 
Oh, keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companions' beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. Now, sweet one, be wise, cast all your votes for dancing. So I, um, not to change the subject, but I had kind of a nice intellectual surprise. A couple of months ago, I was reading um, this wonderful book by Sarah Bakewell called How to Live a Life of Montaigne. It's a kind of biography of the French essayist Montaigne who lived in the um, 17th century in France. And he wasn't really a philosopher. If he lived today, he'd be a blogger. He, he, just, he sat in his tower and all day, every day, and wrote whatever was kind of passing through his mind and left voluminous volumes of journals. So, and ever since the 17th century, he's, he's come and gone out of fashion, and he's coming back into fashion now. He's a lot of fun to read. The guy's um, amusing. But one of the things that I, I learned reading this book is yeah, Montaigne was really into, had a classical education, which meant he was raised um, in, in school, but he was raised speaking classical Greek and, and Latin. So there's a whole section in the book about the Greek philosophers that he appreciated. And I was kind of reminded, I haven't had Greek philosophy since maybe my freshman year in college, but there were the classical Greek philosophers that we all know Bast, who tended to be, tended to be metaphysical, metaphys, metaphysicians, which the Buddha didn't particularly support metaphysical philosophy. But there was this whole different group of Greek thinkers that were also called philosophers, but they were really um, um, scientists of life. They were, like Montaigne, interested in the question, how do you live? There were three major schools of Greeks, um, the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the skeptics. And I'm not going to go into detail about all of them, but these were the three schools of Greek philosophy that looked at how we should live and, and asked this question and tried to answer it. And they all had kind of different bents on it, but there's one general path that they all seem to pretty much agree on it, Being a Dharma person, I really appreciated it. The best path, they seem to agree, the best path to happiness, which in Greek, for those of you, forgive me for my Greek pronunciation because I have no idea how to pronounce Greek. Um, the word for happiness is something like eudaimonia, eudaimonia. Somebody can correct me, do. The best path to happiness is through ataraxia, which is equanimity. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> the, path, the path to happiness is through equanimity. How do you get equanimity? Equanimity is achieved through the practice of prosoche, mindfulness. I thought, wow, you know, I always thought the Greeks were diametrically opposed. I think of rationalism. The, the kind of the 
fundamental basis of our whole philosophical Western culture, which is in so many ways different than Eastern culture, um, is coming from the Greeks. And here I find this group of Greeks that are pretty much in sync with what the Buddha was teaching at the same time. And in fact, when I talked to one of my um, Dharma teachers about this, I said, wow, I just discovered this coolest thing about the Greeks. He said, um, he taught me that um, Pyrrho, the, the, the Greek um, who founded the school of skepticism, Pyrrho, actually traveled, um, was in the entourage of Alexander the, Greek, the Great and spent a good time in northern India, in northern India um, at the time of, or shortly after the time of Buddha. So there was this cross-fertilization of, of um, Western and Eastern cultures, uh, 300 BC. So I'm not necessarily saying that the Greeks got their ideas from the Buddha, but um, you know, the dharma's, Dharma is Dharma, and it's universal no matter who says it. I think we get the same thing from um, Native Americans who had no, 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 no access to the Buddha, but the Dharma is the Dharma. It's, it really pleased me to get the same lessons from the Greeks. Another, um, the, the, the motto of the school of the, of the skeptics Piro's motto, um, skeptic school, is a word something like epoke. And epoke means I suspend judgment. And the skeptics believed that the judgment or even simple views and opinions were so subjective that they should really be kept to yourself because mine are different than yours. And if you do share opinions, views and opinions, you should be deeply respectful of the fact that there's no such thing as an absolutely true view or an opinion. It's always subjective. The Buddha certainly believed this also and um, taught that the um, one of the primary forms of craving, getting back to that, that idea of craving, is views and opinions. It's something, our, our views and opinions are something that we attach ourselves to, they become be, mine, they support ourselves, as self, our, our sense of self, and are fundamentally disrespectful of anybody that, that thinks otherwise. So, um, I kind of wanted to go off on that idea a little bit of views and opinions and then get some of your views and opinions. We have an election year coming up. And I don't know about you, but I'm hearing a lot of views and opinions. <laughs> and it's really interesting to watch my own reaction to that and my own stuff come up. You might have heard this from me before, but I, I've, I periodically take news holidays and I just stay away from the news. And I used to get the daily paper and I canceled it, but I still get the Sunday paper. I get the Sunday New York Times because I like the book review and the entertainment section. But this morning I was, you know, I got my Sunday New York Times and I started looking at it and I was immediately got pissed off. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, at least a couple of different stories. And because today I'm just giving a Dharma talk and I was trying to be mindful and, you know, be in the moment, I just need to put that away. <laughs> just, you know, put the paper aside. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch Fox News. Um, it's not because I disagree with everybody, but one of the things I notice is if you turn off the sound and watch a little bit of Fox News or CNN, you get the same thing. You get the same message. You get agitated people talking a lot. So, the Buddha didn't say don't have views and opinions, but he did advocate for what he called discernment. So that in any given circumstance, including politics, the Buddha would say, evaluate the situation, do what you can do, and don't fret about it. Because most of the pain that we cause ourselves in politics is, is purely internal. Michelle Bachman doesn't annoy you. You you annoy yourself in response to Michelle Bachman. It's a really useful it's a useful distinction to look at in your practice because we're so part of what craving is about is blaming our mood on somebody else. My partner, my job, my Michelle Bachman. Did you notice what came up when I said the word Michelle Bachman? <laughs> I mean, we all have a response. And in a different group, Barack Obama would would produce the same the same response. So what I'm kind of trying to end with, and I hope I'm doing this skillfully, is no, no sorry, <laughs> is to is to get us to pay attention to our response, and and how we create suffering by that response, how we create our own suffering, because I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for creating suffering coming up if you haven't already started in this in this election year. Doesn't have to happen. You know, we can act with discernment. We can do the right thing. We can be engaged Buddhists. But we don't have to sit around grinding our teeth. And one of the, I just wanted to remind you of this before I end. But Bill Weber was here about a month ago. And um, for those of you that were here, he, he, he used a really uh, poignant metaphor that I just want to remind you of. And it was about, he told a story about the Vietnamese boat people after the um, Vietnam War when, when they were evacuating Vietnam and people were trying to get away and there were hundreds if not thousands of overloaded boats trying to get out to the American warships, people trying to escape. And the boats were all overloaded. As soon as they got a, a load of people on the beach, the, the boat would leave and people would swim out and climb on and the boats were turning over and people were panicking and jumping up and down and waving their arms. 
And Bill had read a story someplace um, and quoted it when he was here at CPF about um, someone noticed that if, if the boat had, if a boat had one calm person in it, just one person not panicking, that boat was much more likely to make it. That boat might have been, that, that person might have been, you know, kind of quietly bailing water while everybody else was jumping up and down and waving their arms and excited. But if there's one calm person in the boat, the merit of their practice impacted everybody else on the boat. They were more likely to make it. And that story really stuck with me. So, um... I just want to encourage us as practitioners or Buddhists or just citizens of the world to take the opportunity to be the one calm person in the boat for whatever's coming up and who knows what's coming up. So uh, that's about all I have to say this morning. Thank you for your attention and your patience. And I'd love to hear, we have um, 10 or 15 minutes, I'd love to hear what you think. Anybody have a comment or a question or did I push somebody's button? Um, first of all, thanks for your insights and for sharing your perspective. Um, I, I was listening and I was thinking, you know, part of what you were talking about was <coughs> change and craving and moving away from suffering. I'm wondering um, if you could share your insights or Buddhist uh, perspective on being in a rut, not wanting to change, being stuck. I'm just, I'm, I'm very interested in your perspective. That's a great question. Um, I, uh, I recently was reading a book about uh, trauma. I never really studied psychology, but I got, I got because of something, I, I was looking into trauma. And one of the things that I, I learned that a lot of you probably already know is that there's kind of three basic responses to a traumatic incident or situation in your life. The, the two famous ones that we all know about are fight or flight. We, we, our bodies prepare ourselves to fight or, or run away. But the third one is to freeze. And sometimes I think that a rut is like kind of an extended freeze um, in the face of trauma. Like, life's hard. I don't really know how to, how to address it or, or, or how to change or, or in what direction to go, so I'll just keep doing the same thing that, that I've always been doing. The other part of it is, I think, is just that, that thing I was saying about Sankara's is just habit. That we, we get so entrenched in our habits that um, it's really hard for us to see another way of doing things. And anything that shakes us, shakes us out of our habit or choices that we make to, to change our habits, which is a really courageous thing to do, um, is usually a worthwhile activity. So, um, yeah, I would just... I, I would just maybe look at those two things as, you know, is this more like a trauma thing or more like a habit thing?
But I think it's something we all share. Ruts, right? We all get in ruts. Yes? Good point. Yeah. Yeah, and that also reminds me of um, a story I heard a yogi, a meditator, tell once, um, which which is about craving, about thinking if I just change this thing in my life, everything will be okay. Um, I heard a woman say, tell this story about, well, when I was young, I just thought. When I when I get out of college and get a career that you know, that's when I'm going to be happy. You know, I just can't wait to get out of school. And she, and she got to that point, and it's like, well, you know, this career thing is kind of overblown. But she says, you know, when I find the love of my life, when I find the right man, and get married, then I'm going to be happy. And then it was, you know, well, maybe when I have kids, have kids, and then and then it was, well, when the kids are out of the house, then, <laughs> then I'll have time to be happy. And when I retire. And all of a sudden, this, this woman is in her, you know, was 70 years old, and she said, my whole life I've been planning for the next thing to happen that when, when I could be happy. The whole life has been a plan, not implemented, that happiness only, only exists in this moment right now. And even when we're, we're in a rut, um, the potential for happiness is, is there. We're just not seeing it. It's covered up. I was kind of interested um, more in kind of how you define um, dukkha because then I, you know, I've heard suffering, I've heard unsatisfactoriness. <coughs> you know, when I hear the term unsatisfactoriness, it sounds not so bad. <laughs> Where suffering seems pretty bad, I definitely don't want suffering, but I can certainly deal with some unsatisfactoriness. Um, where would you, in Western psychology, we, we talk about depression a lot. Where is depression? Well, depression is certainly dukkha, for sure. Um, but I think dukkha is a lot more than depression. Dukkha could just be dirty glasses. You know, I don't get depressed because I have dirty glasses, but you know, it's, I'm kind of annoyed. Um, depression is certainly dukkha. I, I've heard it said, and this is a, probably a gross um, oversimplification, so I apologize to our psychiatrists and psychologist friends. I've heard it said that, that depression is very often the result of looking backwards and having regret and remorse for things that have happened in the in the past, and that anxiety is is about looking forward, is is about having um, uh, fear and and uncertainty about what happens in the future. Both of which did not happen in the present moment. So that's my dharma perspective on depression and anxiety is they're both kind of results of not being in the present moment. You're either in the past or in the future. Um, but happiness can only happen 
right now in the in the present moment. There is no self-esteem in that. <laughs> well, low self-esteem is um, is a self-view. It's an idea you have about yourself, and the Buddha talked a lot about that. Um, the Buddha really advised against self-view. Uh, for one thing, he didn't believe that there was a self, or he, he said you could not actually pinpoint and define a self. But low self-esteem is is um, the result of um, um, the, the, the Pali word is mana, but the, the and the Western word is conceit. But it's really about comparison. It's like uh, I'm not as good as the other person, or I'm better than the other person. These are both conceit, and maybe I'm not as good as I think I should be, or I judge myself, and and I'm, I'm less than I think that I should be. That's that's all about comparison. It's all saying, you know, I'm, I'm better or worse than my idea of myself or somebody. Think Buddha said, just don't go there. Just you know, when you realize you're doing conceit, this conceit thing, um, which also happens someplace other than the present moment, um, don't go there. Thank you for bringing up the analogy about the potentially sinking boat and trying to having one same person at least uh, around that I'm finding myself in the last uh, few days and uh, weeks uh, in, in a situation where I fear that unless I step up uh, the boat will be sinking yeah. and uh, that brings up extra burdens uh, on me mainly fear it's like well if I don't do this, you know, then you know what's going to happen. If I don't do this, what's going to happen? And of course, that brings me into into dukkha. Uh, and uh, what advice would you have for this type of crisis management situation that we all experience at one point or another? For those extra difficult times when responsibilities on your shoulders. Well. I heard uh, Will Cabot Zinn speak recently. Will Cabot Zinn is, is a young local teacher who's the son of John Cabot Zinn. You may have read John Cabot Zinn's books. He's a really cool guy, and we have him booked. He's coming to GBF this, this winter sometime. And Will Cabot Zinn said um, anxiety arises in the space between the present moment and the imagined future. That's what came up for me when you said that, because it's that anxiety thing. Is when we feel like we're going, to, we have a responsibility in the future, or something's coming up, and we start thinking about how am I going to deal with this. That's all um, not happening in the present moment. That's you know thinking about an imaginary future, and that's where anxiety comes from. Is when we start imagining what the future might come from. I, I have a plan, uh, uh, an acquaintance who um, kind of drives me crazy sometimes because she always has at least four backup plans for anything that might happen. <laughs> I used to leave my dog with her when I left out. Said, well, you know, and then if I get sick, then we need somebody else to back up me, and then, you know, if it's not convenient for them, then it's, so we'd go through this whole process. 
and it just exhausted me to, you know, to, to share, you know, to go through all the backup plans, and, and, and also knowing that whatever was actually going to happen in the future was probably not going to fit any of those plans, and then she was really going to be in trouble. So, in terms of advice, I mean, it's, I'm not saying don't plan and don't think about, you know, what we need to do to make our lives work, but maybe we don't need to spend quite as much time processing and reprocessing what the future might bring and trust in our ability, our innate ability and our innate wisdom to deal with whatever comes up in the moment as it comes up. It strikes me that that's what's going on when we have these strong reactions to political opinions and Michelle Bachman and all that. It's not what's coming out of the mouth. It's um, our imagining what's going to happen if this view spreads or takes hold, or what's going to happen if she's in power, or whoever. Yeah, yeah, right. I like when you mentioned that it's our reaction because it's so it just popped into my head. It's like an allergy to ragweed. It's, it's happening in you. Yeah. It's, it can float through the air, and other, some other person may not react to it at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, I expected more blowback from you guys about it because I, I, I actually ran this whole concept by a Dharma friend of mine who's really political, really politically connected. In fact, her job is politically connected. And I was saying, yeah, we do the same thing they do. And she says, no, but they're worse. <laughs> They'll do real damage, you know. They're, you know, it's different. It's not the. It's, 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 no. Well, I, I, I actually, I thought I, when you brought up the political thing, I actually thought of a couple of different things, and um, I think that it was um, Lao Tzu that said, you know, the, the leaders are actually a reflection of the people that they lead, and I think that. Um, we want to think that we're we want, not only do we want to think that we're different than the people that support people that we don't like we also want to think that we're different than the people that they support but in fact we're all human beings and um, all of the other sort of crap that's laid on the surface is just it's, it doesn't even really exist and I think that my feeling sometimes is in this country we've we're, we're so invested in having an answer to a, to, a, to a problem that we don't even take time to consider what the, what the origin of the problem is. We're more interested in sort of solving the problem on a symptomatic level. So that, that's one thing that I thought about. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's very wise. And, and we don't see our own fear or their fear. Which reminds me, I've got a couple of juicy quotes to end with, and that'll be done. Yeah. I'm curious when you said that the Buddha um, doesn't believe in a self. Uh, what, the, what is the mind associated with? Oh, that's a whole Dharma talk in itself. <laughs> that's a big question. Um, we really don't have time. For that. <laughs> we really don't. We really don't. But I would. Please come back and share. I will, or or you know, hook me in the in the in the next room, and I'll talk about that a little bit. But yeah, that's the the concept of anatta, which is no self, is is kind of a 
big question, <laughs> but a really good one. It's very pertinent, uh, Dharma. So I don't mean to brush off. It's Not just doing a question. So you know, on this political question, while this is in your mind, especially after your comment, um, I just want to lead lead you with a couple of uh, wise Western Dharma master quotes pertinent to this. I imagine that the reason I imagine that the reason people cling to their hate so adamantly is because once their hate is gone, they will have to face their own pain. James Baldwin, <laughs> gay man. I'll read that again. I imagine that the reason people cling to their hate so adamantly is because once their hate is gone they will have to face their own pain. And the second one, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. That's Henry Wadworth Longfellow. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So thank you for your attention. So you will be here with us. Oh, yeah. Social Um, Go ahead and start announcements. Next week's speaker is Alistair Shanks, who's been here uh, here a year ago. Um, Those of you who are part of the Yahoo groups, the GBS Yahoo groups, I'll go ahead and contact him and find out what his talk will be on. So Alistair Shanks next Sunday. Announcements? The Spirit Walk LBGT retreat is starts next Saturday. It goes for five days. Uh, I haven't heard that it's closed, <coughs> but usually it's pretty, it's pretty packed. And it's just an awesome experience. Alright, well, this is about the newsletter. situation in the city, so if anyone knows or knows someone you know, roommate, please uh, talk to me. Uh, my roommate, uh, I mean my partner, Richard Azzolini, uh, is still stuck in the house uh, after surgery and would appreciate emails, mm-hmm. calls, or visits. I am going to be teaching an eight-week beginning meditation class um, for LGBT seniors um, under the auspices of the Open House, nonprofit organization, but it's just a voluntary thing I'm doing. Uh, It's going to be starting on October 3rd, and it's going to be Mondays at 11 a.m., so if any of you are not working or don't work on Mondays and want a nice place to come sit during the day or want beginning instruction, can't get too much beginning instruction, 
Um, I left a few flyers. They look like this out there. And a reminder that our talks are available on the internet at the GBF website, gaybuddhist.org. Tom? I don't see Clint Seiger. Does anyone know if we are or are not having a booth at the Casco Street Fair next weekend? He, I remember he mentioned that there was going to be, but I haven't heard anything about it ever since. Tony, I'm the host today. There are some refreshments out there. Please eat everything. Um, if you have any tea, uh, please wash your cup in some hot soapy water and rinse it and put it in the drying rack by the sink. Um, there's a sign-up sheet if you're new or if you have a change of address. The sign-up sheet for the um, roster membership, what do we call it? <laughs> Directory. It, it would be on that piece of furniture that's off to the right as you go out these doors. Um, around 12.30, there's usually people who want to go to lunch together, so if you'd like to join that group, just hang out by the front door around 12.30 and people will meet up and make their decisions. I'll be coming around during the social time with the Dynamo, that's an opportunity to express your gratitude and your, what's the word? Generosity. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and the suggested donation is between five and eight dollars, but anything you can give is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Before we stand for the dedication of merit, um, I have something that I'd like to share with you. Um, a lot of some of you guys know my friend Patricia, who has come to the GBF and who was at my fiftieth. Um, last month, and she had an opportunity to meet you and vice versa. Um, she's been battling ovarian cancer for the past two and a half years, and three years actually, but for the when she was diagnosed, um, I was privileged enough to be part of this journey with her, and so I've gone down this path with her very closely. Um, she turned. She took a turn for the worse this week, and so we've been every night, every day. Um, her aunts, her family, she's, she's being held right now with a lot of love. But we've been holding basically a vigil, um, just waiting for the moment to come. And she's not really too responsive now, but she can still hear. Um, I, I wanted to share this with you because a beautiful thing happened. She's not a religious person. She was, uh, but her family very much is. So they asked her if she would be okay with receiving the last sacrament, the last rites by a priest. And so she accepted. And of course, I kept this to myself, but I know that she accepted to give it for her family, to give them one last gift, because she knew that it would come for them in this moment. So we couldn't, they couldn't find, we couldn't find a priest for the longest time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God, because <laughs> Because I thought of someone very special, very close to my heart, and a friend of hers, Gary, Gary Ost, who is our Sangha member, is an Episcopalian priest, and he came to do the last rites on Thursday night. And I have to tell you, it was a really beautiful experience because the family was satisfied with their needs, but I think so was she, because it was by a friend, someone who she really connected with, 
someone who she knows I love dearly, and he was great. And at the very end of the sacrament, he brought in a medal and his own dedication of merit. Which is really, of course, the only part I really connected to is the rest of it. I was like, okay, well, I hope you all are all happy. <laughs> but it was a really a beautiful moment. So I'm going to ask today, if you will, to hold a space for Patricia when we do our dedication and to also bring in any wonderful soul or being that you've lost either recently or is ready to go. Let's bring some of their, bring some love to them for their transition and for everything we brought to our lives. I'd appreciate it. Let's stand. So, um, just take a moment to look around the room. You beautiful men, shared your practice, shared your space, shared your silence this morning. So let's dedicate the merit of our practice, whatever good we've achieved here this morning, either by the silence of our sitting or reflections, insights, remembrances, Whatever went on for us, let's share the merit of that practice with Patricia and anyone else that is ill or suffering or challenged or dying. Let's just send the merit of our practice out to all beings that are struggling and send them our love and our kindness. May they be safe. May they pass with dignity. May they have happiness. May they be free. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.